Hi, everyone, and welcome to Talent Talks. I'm Rob Adams. In this episode, we're excited to be joined by Eddie Pate, Strategic Partner, Executive Coaching at Nexus Search Partners. Eddie brings more than 23 years of cross-industry experience to Nexus's team of strategic partners. Throughout his career, he has transformed businesses in the realm of diversity and inclusion. As an operational executive, Eddie utilizes his inspirational leadership style and dynamic skill set to develop organizational culture that reflects the communities they serve and values diverse perspectives. His commitment to having a global lens has been paramount to his success in business. Eddie's journey has taken him through several companies, including Microsoft, Starbucks, Avanade, and Amazon. Today, we'll be discussing the evolving landscape of executive search processes, focusing on diversity and inclusion. Eddie, how are you? Nice to talk with you. Rob, I'm doing well. Thank you. How are you, my friend? I'm doing well. Uh, it's a it's a good day to talk and uh, see what's going on. So let's let's dive right in. Eddie, All right, can, sounds good. Can can you share some insights into the evolving landscape of executive search processes and how they've adapted to prioritize diversity and inclusion in recent years? And what trends do you foresee in this space in 2024? Um, yeah, Rob, absolutely. I love the I love the question. And I'll start with the prioritization piece of it. I I think there's been an increased awareness of uh, of the business value that companies, C suites, boards, etc have been seeing um, leading to the the prioritization of identity. It's been really important. And it really boils down to um, the global competitive advantage you create by having leaders who are multinational and multicultural in their thinking. And I think this is the critical part, Rob, in their lived experiences. So we want leaders who have had lived experiences that 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 take on this multicultural, multinational kind of framework. And, it, and it's in the ability to attract the best and brightest talent. Um, that, again, is another key point for me, that talent is culture add and not culture fit. We've got to move away from cultural fit into more of a cultural add perspective. And it's, it's truly understanding that it, it, as a final piece, it's the truly understanding that Multiple generations are in the workplace and you see increasing numbers of millennial and Gen Z workers and leaders and so on. So from a prioritization kind of standpoint, that's what I see in terms of processes um, to, to get to another part of your question. We see more importance clearly placed on assessing cultural competence. So, you, you, again, if we're multinational, multicultural you know, companies, we need to be culturally competent and understand the different various aspects of culture within the workplace. And you need to understand inclusion, diversity, and equity, right? We've also seen in terms of processes, the most aware companies using diverse candidate slating, for example, and making sure interview loops are diverse themselves. Um, we see in here, Rob, intentionality in where searches are conduct and conducted, and then how data are reviewed and analyzed. Are they intersected? And are they intentional? Sure. You know, we see we see processes of going to non-traditional sources for references and leads, for example. And these sources, and I think the the importance for the audience to understand is these sources are steeped in connections with Black and Brown led organizations. 
women's organizations, veterans organizations, et cetera, right? So depending on what it is that's important to you and your organization. And then um, I think the final way, the, the final part of your question about what do we see trending in 2024 in terms of, in, uh, of executive search firms, I think, it, Rob, I think it comes down to value. I think it comes down to increasing the understanding uh, of the value that ID&E brings, right? The value is helping clients. And this is something that Thad Jones at Nexus says, says all the time. He says, we have to see beyond simply filling a role. This is what we're going to do to help our clients, right? It's more than just simply filling a role. And so that value is in how are we making sure those executives are set up to succeed in companies that are global, right? And multicultural, sure. multinational. Sure. It's making clients understand how talent will impact future strategy and strategic imperatives. So who you hire today based off of the lived experiences they have will directly impact what your strategy, future strategic imperatives look like, right? And I think that's super important. I mean, how do we help our clients and companies with deep data assessments that are intersected, right? Very smartly by different measures, different variables, and different demographics, right? So how are we looking at data that just doesn't roll up everyone into one glob, but actually disaggregates into the impact to women, the impact to people of color, the impact to people with disabilities, and so on, right? In terms of the workplace and the in the markets that we're in. So I think that's super important in terms of value add. It's stressing to clients that looking um, at their culture is critical, right? DNA focus, you know, ways are going to be really critical. And it's going to what it's going to do, Rob, is help executives come in faster and more impactful quickly. Right. So yeah. if we if we give them the types of assessments that they need, this that's the value that it brings. And here in terms of, you know, this this part of my response to, to your question, which, which obviously I'm excited about and I love is a key trend, I think, will be about finding. And here's the, here's the term I use, Rob, uncultivated, underestimated talent. Right. So we are going to help Nexus and companies like Nexus mm-hmm. who are on this right this bleeding edge of of innovation we're going to find uncultivated underestimated talent that has traditionally been overlooked right in the marketplace and recruiting plans even in succession efforts this is going to be a key differentiator i think to clients and customers as they scrutinize between who should they go with what executive search firm should they use and if you come to them and you say rob look i'm going to help you find that untapped talent that is just amazing and underestimated and is going to come in hungry and is going to come in understanding cultural the cultural lens that you're in that's what companies are going to want and and i i'll sum up this response and i know it's long-winded but just a couple more things in terms of the trending that we'll see in 2024 i think successful executive search firms will take a more intentional effort at supporting whoever takes those roles so nexus has this perspective that we want to be an extension of an, a newly hired executive's team. We don't want to just, you know, hire a person, help someone get hired, close the books, move on, and care very little little about their success. Rob, it's more important that we become an extension of their team that they're successful in the workplace. The other the other trend that I see speaks directly to the clients. I think lack of being intentional, like I'm talking about, will be viewed as lacking authenticity. I think search firms are going to say, you know, we understand how important ID&E is, and we want firms that are focused on this 
because we know markets are very global, they're very competitive, um, and you know the value of diversity is becoming clearer and clearer. And then the final point, and then I'll, I'll shut up, <laughs> is um, I think exec, exec uh, search firms like Nexus under the, understand the value proposition, if you will, when it comes to, and, and, and another phrase I like to use, the flywheel effect of authenticity, right? So it's, it is, it's, it's really understanding the flywheel effect of authentically giving back to the communities we operate in. You, you, what you're doing here is you're, you're kind of continuing the cultivation of talent from those communities, if you will. It is not just brand awareness, although it, it's partly that, but it's this long-term benefit that comes from taking a real and aware interest in the various diverse communities that surround us. The, the benefits will way outweigh the costs and, and focus on these efforts. And, and, and I think there's a compelling personal right thing to do story here, Rob. And then there's a compelling business imperative story that we keep developing, influencing, helping all those people around us with our daily work, right? They're our future customers. They're our future clients. They're our future executives. We have got to give back to the community. So that I love that quote. What a way to start the, the the podcast, Rob. What a what a good uh, what a good question. So wow, that's that's my long winded response. That's that's hitting it out of the park. I love that passion. That's a that's a great start, Eddie. Given your extensive experience in leading global talent for major corporations, how do you see the definition of diversity evolving within executive roles, especially considering the intersections of race? gender, age, and other dimensions of diversity? There's a lot there. I, I like this question. Yeah, no, I love that question. And I, I do a lot of thinking about it, a lot of discussing and talking with people about this particular question. Um, so one thing that, that I'll point out right away is there won't be one magic set of intersected diversity dimensions, right, that everyone's going to look for and want to you know, acquire to be successful. It will vary. And that variation will, I think, selectively across the business landscape, Rob, will lead to more creativity, innovation, empathy, vulnerability, right? And this belief in the power of ID&E. So in other words, we don't need everyone copying and mirroring what everyone else is doing in terms of diversity dimensions, whether it's gender, age, you know, thinking style, working style, all these different dimensions. But collectively, if we all do this, the business landscape is just going to be more creative and innovative and innovative and everyone benefits. Right. So, and as simple as this seems, there is a necessity for a deeper understanding, Rob, of how diversity matters greatly to the success of a business. So, and, and, and it's, there's also a necessity to understand, um, you know, the power that's unleashed, you know, the, the, the creative power that's unleashed. Right. And to truly understand, like I said earlier, um, that a younger generation will only grow in numbers, right? So executives, the bottom line of this part of my response is executives who want to create competitive advantage, Rob, on the one hand, um, and foster the building of cultures on the other will flourish. But executives who don't embrace this mindset will not be as successful and will face larger attrition issues, less satisfied and engaged employees. And, and, and clearly what executives are understanding and what we need to understand as executive search firms and finding the right people is creating cultures of inclusion and belonging will continue to matter more and more, right? So in light of all of this, search firms need to do a couple things. Um, I think search firms will need to continue to build out the recruiters' capabilities in the ID&E space. 
So if you think about it, we've got to teach recruiters and people who are going to be touching this talent, talking to this talent, understand the importance of inclusion, diversity, and equity at all facets, understand cultural competence, understand the need for multinational, you know, lived experience. So we need our recruiters to be smarter in this space. And we need, there will be a need to embrace kind of the reality and power that ID&E brings with, and I think the way to say it is intentionally integrating this topic into how they search, how they engage, and actually how they get measured. I want them to understand that they're going to get be measured by how successful they are with this. So and then the last piece that I think recruiters need to, we need to do with recruiters, the second piece is they will also need to be taught how to have meaningful conversations with clients who don't get it, Rob, who don't understand the importance of ID&E, who are resistors or who simply are oblivious to the need impacts, right? Our recruiters need to be, in, to be able to influence um, their clients and their customers to say, no, look, you're not asking me for this, but this is really important. And this is why this is important. And I need to have a real meaningful conversation with you. And then I think the final part of this for me, the question is, it's kind of foundational in terms of the definition of diversity we're talking about here. So customers are more and more diverse. Business is more and more global, mm -hmm. right? Problems that need to be solved are more complex and, and as everyone knows, innovations happen faster and faster and faster, right? So we, so what we have is a more competitive business landscape, um, you know, one that executive talent needs to be aware of. They need to, you know, have the ability to inspire and influence people around them to understand, to understand this and then flourish because of it, right? So search firms are going to need to look for this in the talent that they surface, right? So it's going to, it's going to be on search, you know, firms to Find people who get this, who understand the competitive nature, who understand the global nature of business, right? And make sure that those are the people that they're bringing into these companies. And and I think this is going to be a critical uh, a critical piece um, for search firms going forward. Yeah, uh, the, uh, Nexus Search Partners emphasizes introducing diverse talent networks and conducting cultural assessments. How do these practices, Eddie, influence and enhance the traditional executive search process? And what impact have you observed on organizations that implement such strategies? All right, Rob. Wow. Um, that is another great, that is another great question. I, buckle I, up. I, I he's love, fired up. <laughs> buckle up, man. Cause I am, I am ready to come with it. So let's go uh, again. These are all things, Rob, that we talk about quite a bit, honestly. And I, and I'd say broadly speaking, um, to this question, I, I think a huge influence has been the kind of the notion of intentionality that I've been talking about is how are you very purposeful in your approach? you know, integrating ID&E into everything that you do. And when I'm talking about everything you do, it, it comes to recruiting strategies, to planning, engagement of, of talent. It's intentionally creating and kind of tapping into the things that you point out in your question, the diverse talent networks and um, deploying cultural assessments, right? That can, and I, I think what they do is they, from a high broad they help newly hired diverse talent start faster in, in new roles, for example, right? It's big. So if you speak directly to diverse talent networks, mm -hmm. so they enable competitive intel, if you will, right, about what leaders can expect in some situations, either the, you know, whether those situations are culturally based or systemically, or systemically based. 
And it's this informed lived experience thing that that I talked about that other diverse leaders understand, right? So having diverse talent networks helps someone understand if IDE is real in in the company that they're coming into, or is it or is it authentic or is it fluff, right? And that's important to know. These networks become a great source of diverse talent referrals. Um, it, it, look, Rob, there's nothing like someone truly empathizing and understanding what it's like to be a diverse leader, especially in situations where you are the only or you're close to it. And, and, sure. and what I mean by the only is the only female executive, the only black executive, the sure. only indigenous executive. There's a whole research uh, literature base on what it means to be the only and how to pay attention to that. So having diverse talent networks helps you mitigate some of the impacts of being the only. And, and you know, the, the so and the other piece of this question, which is which I think is very cool, is I, I want to make sure that it, that, that you the listeners understand that it's much, much broader than just race. Right. I've emphasized just a moment about being the only. But really, it, it's multinational and multicultural companies like we've talked about are a challenge in their own way. And having a network that can help you clarify and explain, kind of lay out the landscape of what is happening is rude, right? If a leader, for example, here, here's an example. So if a leader, for example, is a white American female and you find yourself in a role where your executive leadership team, your board, or your boss is in Japan, for example, mm-hmm. and you have key stakeholders in the EU countries like Italy or Spain, having help from these these um, these groups to navigate through these cultural waters can spell the difference between success or failure, right? Cultural awareness and competency is play a huge part and just plays out large across multinational companies, right? So, so that gives you kind of a, a sense of what I'm talking about, how important that piece of it is. And so that's, those are the networks. If you think about cultural assessments, the other part of your question, it helps leaders identify gaps in organizations' ability as they function at high levels, right? So if you think about having highly functioning teams that are global and that are multinational, which is pretty much what we have uh, for the most part, or even within the United States or multiple cultures that you're dealing with across the span of the U.S., right? Having cultural assessments helps you understand where your gaps are and where, where how to fix them. So the assessments point to both positive aspects to be leveraged, like, for example, um, you, you through your assessment, you figure out you have a strong speak up culture where people, regardless of level, are willing to be vocal or heard on positive or negative things. Right. That's a value. Um, or a cultural assessment can point out negative aspects in your culture. Right. That need to be addressed. Like, let's say a culture is overly hierarchical and critical, you know, creativity, innovation are stifled in, uh, you know, by unnecessary levels or impenetrable levels, right? So the net levels may be good, but you're not allowing innovation to creep up from the lower levels because you're too hierarchical. So cultural assessments can help leaders come in and understand this and strategically know what to deal with it. So it's, you know, think about it this way, having this kind of broad cultural understanding uh, as a new hired leader can help minimize, um, Rob, as Dad and I talk about surprises, minimizes mistakes, and can actually foster you know, much faster ability, if you if you will, to have an impact more quickly, right? Search firms that provide this intel uh, to these leaders um, are, are are being intentional, um, are as I said earlier, acting you know actively extending the leaders you know 
you know, actively extending the leader's team, right? You're being, you're a part of it. And I think that's super, I think that's an impossible, that's a very positive, important thing. And, and Rob, as I think about the last part, the, the, I, I like this part of it because often, you know, you hear all this theoretical perspective and you hear someone talk about, you know, here's what it's, you know, what's all about and what we do, but what they want to know is what's going to be the impact. And yeah. that's the last part of your question. And I think that's a really important piece of it. So, and this is something that I'm just, you know, haven't read or I've read it, of course, but these are the experiences I've seen over these 23, 24 years I've been doing this work, right? Leaders go in with their eyes wide open, right? They're not caught by surprise. I've seen higher retention of leaders, you know, um, you know, leaders specifically and by extension, their employees. So if your leaders are more versed in what the culture of an organization is, and they have this intel from these, you know, these diverse networks, they create more trust within the workforce and that workforce is more willing to follow them, more willing to be part of their team and allow them to get in and be successful. So you see that, I've seen that happen constantly. So retention efforts go up, engagement efforts uh, levels go up. Better engagement all around because of, you know, you are not dealing with that incredible stress that you feel like you're being set up to fail. You come in, you, you know, you're, you're hit with all these things all of a sudden that you weren't aware of and you feel like you've been set up to fail or you feel like you, you've, you've come in with blinders on, right? Um, and this feeling is gone because you've gotten the, the intel that you need. I think another, you know, big impact is, and, and I think your listeners will agree with this completely, is that trust is a critical piece, right, of, of any successful executive, how fast you build it and what ways you build it. So trust among fellow leaders happens faster. Trust among direct reports happens faster. And definitely the trust that you as a leader can lead a team or an org or a company on a journey of belonging it happens faster. And I think that's important. Um, some more impacts that I think are important for your listeners to hear and understand, right? Um, better and faster ramping from leaders. I, I, I've literally sat in discussions with leaders that were talking about their 30, 60, 90 day expectations, which is often kind of a strategy for, you know, identifying, you know, your first few steps as you come into an organization, how successful right. their, their, um, their impacts are so much better because they've come in with that intel and they weren't having to sift through and navigate. It was more of a direct line because some of that intel is clarified where they have to go. Um, so you ultimately have far less unexpected hurdles, I think is the way to think about it. Although there are always hurdles, right? I'm not going to paint a rosy picture that that solves everything. It, it doesn't, right? But you have, um, you just see them coming and you, you, you don't get them one after the other compounded by a lack of understanding the culture, right? Which I think is important. And, and I think the very last thing that I would say and, and this is something that's very important to Thad, and he and I at Nexus talk about this all the time, is that these things that I've talked about in terms of impacts and, and, and the structures and stuff that I've been talking about lead to a better ROI for the entire company, right? Not just for the team or the organization this leader comes into. If this person's a CEO or has an impactful role, the return on investment for the company is just that much better. I, I couldn't agree more. Could not agree more. That the ROI right on the money. I I totally agree. Uh, Eddie, in in your book, Daily Practices of Inclusive Leaders, 
You emphasize the role of leaders in fostering inclusive workplaces through small, intentional daily practices. Can you elaborate on some specific examples of these practices and how they can fundamentally shift organizational cultures towards true inclusion? And additionally, additionally, how, how do these practices differ from or complement traditional diversity and inclusion initiatives often led by HR departments? And what outcomes can leaders expect to see? By adopting these daily inclusive practices, I know there's a lot there, but there's a lot of meat on yeah. that bone too. No, no, and I, I again, you know, I, I, I sincerely appreciate kind of the the nod to my book that's coming out. Um, not like I want to sound like an infomercial. May twenty eighth, you can you know go to Amazon now and order your book. Pre-order. I love it. So, Promote it, please do. <laughs> so, um, I appreciate that the call out. So, like one one quick clarification that I'll that I'll make. IDE efforts, Rob, are um, not solely led by HR functions. And in fact, that's a primary premise of my book is that um, I wanted to create a guide, if you will, for all the various groups and organizations that that help drive uh, um, IDE efforts. So not just HR, we're talking about employee resource groups, we're talking about sustainability teams. We're talking about corporate social responsibility or CR, CSR organizations, or even in organizations we have established diversity leadership teams or help driving the work. It's all these, it's all these teams, Rob, and individuals who are doing the daily work that that shifts or brings about the desired cultural or organizational change. And as we say it in my book, one pebble at a time and one ripple at a time. And I'll explain that. And that's going to get to the core of what your question is. But I, I wanted to do that as a premise first. The other, the other piece that I, that, I, that I really like about your 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 question, and I think it's important for the listeners to understand, is that our book is a complement to traditional IND practice, ID practices. So, like if you if you think about large scale efforts to create like change within organizations doing ID work, you're looking at structure, processes, and policies in place. You have an employee life cycle lens to your your strategic efforts and your efforts are flourishing. It is those particular situations that I think the, our book, The Daily Practices of Inclusive Leaders, right? How to build, um, you know, cultures of belonging. It's a perfect complement because now you have all these organizations that have all these structures in place and, and they have, they've hired their talent that they're going to, who's going to drive this effort. They have good strategic imperatives set up for, 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 um, you know, over the next two or three years. But what they often lack, Rob, is what are those actual practical daily things that leaders and individuals like e- on ERGs and, ex- for example, can do every single day? That's where my book comes in because it gives them a whole slew of all these daily act, um, activities and practices they can do that lead to systemic and cultural change. But even without organizations that have, that, so you have you you have organizations that don't have structure, aren't looking at the life cycle approach to doing strategic diversity work, and it kind of it. I, I do scratch my head on this one. Why companies will come in and just say, "What are we going to do for a diversity strategy?" Well, let's just start some ERGs. Let's start some employee resource groups, right? Let's get blacks at Microsoft, or let's get women at Amazon. Let's do this. Which look, those are super effective efforts and things to do, but they're not embedded in strategy. 
But even in those situations, I would argue that the way our book is written is still a compliment because you're going to still have people who are within your organization, even if they don't have a strategy to tie on to, they are going to be able to look through our book as a guide and say, well, I need to do some talent acquisition things, or I need to do some talent management things, or I need to do some community outreach things. What are the things I can do while they figure out how to do the strategy that I could do that have an impact in the organization? The book fills that need. So you can have well-versed companies or companies are going at it haphazardly. I think our book does kind of hit that need. So um, so th- that I, I think addresses the competency piece of the question that you you asked. Um, and look, I, I won't elaborate on um, um, you, you know my entire book, right? I'm not gonna I, <laughs> like I could sit and talk to you about two hours sure. right now about this sure. entire book, right? But your question zeroes in on a very specific part, the tempered radical piece, the dropping pebbles and and rocking boats. I'm going to talk about that. Um, more extensively, but I do want your leaders to understand very quickly that we do lay out the book with a specific insights on inclusive leadership model that we've designed and developed that I've actually created and used over the last 20 years. We talk about um, the the need for wisdom, courage, and heart to lead inclusively, right? We talk about the importance of structure and accountability and what that looks like. We talk about the importance of HR as a true ID&E partner to help scale efforts, Robin. And, and people will understand that because I tell a story in there that my last gig at Amazon, for example, I had a total of 18 people who reported to me um, at any given time, um, especially during the peak um, times at Amazon, there are a million people, a million people, Rob, we were responsible for as employees. Ooh, wow. So how do you... How, yeah, right. Fifteen people. How do you scale to that? We did it through um, leveraging HR's true ID partners because they're everywhere, right? So we talk about that, and then we wrap the book with a discussion. Two really important discussions, I think. One is we want to let people know what hurdles they may face on their ID journey, so that they aren't suddenly hit with these hurdles. The same way that we talk about you know, making sure that we use, you know, diverse networks and assessments for leaders. So they're not, they're not, you know, they don't have blinders coming in sure. and get hit. It's the same thing, right? So we try to point out some of the hurdles they'll face in an ID and E journey. And then the final thing that we do is we give, I think, a real cool set of guiding principles for how to lead inclusively. So you go through the book and the last thing that you get is this, all right, so what are those guiding principles that are going to help me really successfully deploy what Eddie and and his co-author Jonathan Stutz are talking about, right? So, all right, now that's all that's all context for how I would respond to your question uh, um, and zero in on the the key part of it. So, part that you're asking about most in this question is what we call the tempered radical approach, and I, we didn't make this up. This is a, an incredible book that Deborah Meyerson. Um, a professor at Stanford wrote, and, and it was called Tempered Radical, and she she changed the, the 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 title to Rocking the Boat, so you can find either one of those you know titles. And what Tempered Radical, what a Tempered Radical means, and I think this is the important piece for for your audience to understand. There are two primary analogies that that Deborah uses in this book that I think are super important. The first one is she talks about 
the, 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 the necessity to sometimes rock the boat and rock it hard, be a super radical, rock it so hard, but don't rock it so hard that you knock yourself and others out of the boat. Because if you want to affect change, you've got to be in the boat, right? Does that makes sense, point. Rob? You've Very got, you got to be in the boat. Yeah. Although there are going to be times when you run into egregious situations or a leader that is purposefully multiple, multiple times constantly, um, you know, is showing some type of inappropriate behavior or action that you do need to rock the boat, rock it hard enough and knock people out or risk mm-hmm. knocking yourself out. That, so there is going to be that necessity. But for the most part, what you have to do to be effective and what we talk about in our book is you have the courage the heart and the wisdom to rock a boat, rock it really hard, but keep yourself and others in the boat so you can affect change. That's one primary perspective that she talks about. The second analogy that she uses in the book that uh, tempered radicals that we've uh, that we've integrated and woven through the entire book and is probably the most core piece of what we talk about is this whole notion of dropping a pebble that causes a ripple. Those ripples cause someone else to drop a pebble, which causes a ripple, which causes someone else to drop a pebble, which causes a ripple, and so on on and on. And Rob, the key point to this is the aggregation of all those pebbles and ripples that leads to systemic change and, and, and cultural change, right? So when people come to us, or to me as I've led over the years and say, hey, Eddie, tell me the three big things that I can do right now that's going to change everything in terms of the ID&E landscape. I'll I'll just in my mind shake my head and say this person doesn't get it, which I <laughs> typically don't 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 say it out loud. Of, I try to course. call them in. And, yeah, and I talk I talk with them in a, in a in a more constructive way, and it, because that's not how this works. What you 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 you'll not have the sustained efforts you want. You'll not have the buy-in you want if you just try to come in and do three big things, or you try to come in and just uh, let's just deal with the talent acquisition part of it, right? without worrying about the culture in which these talent will land, right? Sure. So uh, we talk about, listen, you have got to do daily activities that you drop a pebble that causes ripples and it causes your direct reports and you hold them accountable for dropping pebbles and they hold others accountable for dropping pebbles, right? And again, it's that systemic, it's, it is that aggregation of all those pebbles and ripples that leads to systemic change. And here's the beauty of this thing, Rob, and, and this is what I think your listeners who are in leadership roles or in or in companies that are they're they're running constantly like Amazon always talks about bias for action you know with everything's you know happens really really fast everyone's really busy if you take a tempered radical approach and you look at the, the, the kinds of things we talk about in our book we make it much easier for leaders who have these massive plates of activities and stuff they already their plates are full so the last thing that they want to hear is, I have to do this in order to make diversity work. We're saying, no, actually, all you need to do is drop this pebble and hold people accountable for dropping a pebble and someone else to drop a pebble and someone else to drop a pebble. So it, this is a perfect perspective, I think, for how busy real life executives and people are in their organizations, right? They don't have time to add 20 more percent to their jobs. What they need to do is learn how to integrate ID&E into what they're doing, which we teach them, and to drop pebbles, which causes ripples, and and hold people for being accountable for this. So this is a main core of what we talk about every single chapter. We're constantly referring to the pebbles that we drop and the ripples that we cause, and here's what you do. So 
this ties in nicely with the last part of your question is what are some of those practices? So what are some of the examples that people, um, when they order my book on May 28th, right? <laughs> There's my other plug, Rob, right? I love it. Um, I love it. So they'll see that there are uh, 50 or 60, you know, pebbles that we put in there, but I'm, I, I'm clearly not going to talk about all of them. But if you, if you think about how we've structured our daily practices and how we structured the book as well, we look at the life cycle of the life cycle of an employee. So you have the structure and accountability you have to create for when they come in. You have attracting talent that we've talked a lot about today, but you also have develop, keep, and engage. So how do you develop your employees? How do you keep your employees or retain them? And how do you engage them? Right. And then you and then you talk about that ever important thing that we talked about earlier, which is how do you engage communities? Right. So that's all the life cycle of what an employee looks like. And we have daily practices for each of those. And so, for example, if you think about attracting talent, um, are you making, um, you know, diverse candidate slating mandatory? In other words, before you close an interview loop and hire someone, are you interviewing at least two women and or people of color or veterans or people with disabilities or whatever is important to you? Right. Sure. Um, Are your interview loops themselves diverse? It's never a good idea to have every one of your you know interviewers be all men or all white or all women right or all people of color for that matter right you want a diverse interview loop so you get those diverse perspectives helping you decide what's the best talent to pick that's just dropping a pebble that's simply mandating look make your diverse interview loops and that's what we want to have so right it's hiring for both hard and soft skills right this is something i thought was very cool too over my years is and within engineering organizations, which are notorious for hiring only on hard skills, right? Not integrating soft skills into how they bring their people in. We're starting to see engineering executives and VPs who are making a part of their tenants of their organization soft skills like vulnerability and soft skills like empathy and uh, you know and understanding, right? This and and that's you know that's a easy pebble to drop, right? Other things that we talk about in the book. Um, there's this there's thing called the pause button, Rob. And what the pause button is, is is this real cool uh, agreed to process. Like if you're sitting in a talent management meeting, if you're sitting in a talent acquisition meeting where you're trying to decide on a particular t- um, um, talent that you want to hire, or you're you know talking promotion discussions or something, oftentimes when you hear something that's you don't understand or you see data on a chart that, you know, you know that data is wrong mm-hmm. and you feel so uncomfortable and you don't know how to pause the conversation in a legitimate way. And maybe you have a bunch of VPs and directors and you're a manager and you feel uncomfortable. So oftentimes what happens then is people don't say anything. You've been in situations, right, where you know you want to say something and it's like an hour after you live, you've been in that situation that you go, Dang, I should have said this, right? Damn, I should have said this, right? Every day. <laughs> um, every day, right? So the pause button is this agreed upon, upon process where, look, you'll just say, hey, we've all agreed to this. I'm hitting the pause button. And then there's a set of questions that we lay out in our book that you can ask uh, as associated with this pause button. And what that pause button does is it takes the pressure. It takes the 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 nervousness away from stopping a conversation because we've agreed to all agree to it. So it takes that tension that away. Simple does take that tension away. So you're sitting in a meeting where you hear someone, um, and this is another thing we talk about is, you know, as, as a, as a, as a pebble you drop, you hear someone, um, 
um, you know, cut off a woman who's giving an example and you see someone just jump in on her and cut her off. And that happens more often, according to research, to women than it does to men. So in that situation, someone may say, hey, Rob, I'm going to hit the pause button for just a second. Look, I know you didn't intend it, but you cut off Mary and I, I just and I want to hear what you have to say, but I want to hear what Mary wants to say, has to say. I think that's really important. And that pebble that I just dropped by having that conversation, and I didn't do it in a call out fashion. You notice I did it in a call in fashion. I noticed where yep. I, I, you know, where you say, you know, like Rob, I, you know, you have valuable things to say. I want to hear it, but let's hear it from Mary first, as opposed to saying, Rob, dude, you do this all the time. You need to cut that out. Let's hear from Mary. So that's calling out, and that's not always effective. So we talk about, you know, calling someone in, um, using the pause button, and those are all effective things that shift culture. So, so, so here's how the pebble and ripple works on that example, right? I called you in on, on a situation where you unintentionally cut a woman off and who was giving a really good example. Someone else sitting in that meeting may go to a next meeting and see someone else cut someone off. And now they have seen how that it's modeled and that person in that next meeting may drop a pebble and say, hey, hold on a second. What, let's, let's wait. Let's first hear from Tamika because I think Tamika was making a really good point. And then we'll circle back to you, Mike. Okay, is that all right? Cool. I think that we need to do that. Tamika has a lot of valuable stuff that I think we all need to listen to. You're dropping pebbles and causing ripples. Not only do you make Tamika feel like it's a culture of belonging and she belongs here and that someone else has her back. See how that works, right? See how you're creating culture as a belonging and inclusion, right? Now, you've also modeled the behavior like you saw in another meeting. So you've dropped another pebble, which caused another ripple. And so now you have 10 more people sitting around the table who see what it looks like to have an inclusive culture. And now someone else may do the same thing in the next meeting, at the next meeting, at the next meeting. You see how this works. And that's how change happens. It doesn't happen that you say, I'm going to mandate that no one ever cut a woman off, period. Right? Like, no one's going to mandate. It has to be practical on a daily basis and authentic, right? So it's stuff like this, Rob. You know, and I have multiple examples Meeting speak up cultures we talk about, you know, you know, spend your privilege. Like if you are, you know, the spend your privilege um, pebble is a really good one that that I'll highlight and I'll end on that one. The the reason I like spend your privilege is it's based off of the ordinary dimensions that we have every day. So in most organizations, for example, um, you still have disproportionate number of men at senior levels, right? And you have fewer women at, at senior levels and you have more visibility from men in the workplace, for example. Um, or if you're a multicultural, multinational organization, you know, your American-based executives often speak more, that kind of thing. I mean, that's what the research says, right? Mm-hmm. So if you spend your privilege in that moment and you say, you know what? I'm not going to be the one who's going to get up on the podium, get all the accolades, all the applause and tell the strategy because I always get that. I'm actually going to tap a more junior level woman in the organization, person of color, person with disabilities, someone whose language abilities are very different and maybe English is their second language. And, um, and it's a very noticeable accent. I'm going to tap that person to give this, this keynote to tap that person to give the strategic um, you know, layout and what our imperative is for the next year. And you, what you're doing by that simple pebble you're dropping is creating visibility to the value of diversity in your organization. You're giving visibility to different perspectives and mindsets. And you're telling people in the audience that they matter, right? It's not that, that, 
you know what? I can actually see people on stage who look like I do, reflect who I am, and it gives me hope, right, in the workplace that I too can to aspire to that. You, you see where my logic is going? A oh, simple yeah. act of creating visibility for someone else in an important moment has ripples that that carry throughout an entire organization. So these are the things we talk about in daily practices of inclusive leaders, very practical, easy things that anyone can do at any given time at any given day. So you know what, if you give me two more hours, I'll talk to you more about my <laughs> book, but I, I think I'll stop there and see if, um, if you have questions or of anything that I've talked about. If that makes sense about the book, all that kind of stuff. Right? Oh, it all it all makes sense. And and believe it or not, we have almost run out of time on our session today. We have hit so many things, Eddie, and, and uh, I'm I'm all in on promoting your book. So, folks, uh, <laughs> May, you said, right? May 28th. And you can go to Amazon right now. Just type in Eddie Pate in the browser and you can pre-order the book. That, so thank you for that. No, my pleasure. That is that's tremendous. You you've given so much that has um empowered people as well. That's one thing that that's a word that kept coming to me as you were talking about a lot of the inclusivity of getting that person on stage, you know, that that pebble in yeah. and drop yeah. it in and you're empowering. And that's you want to want you want to run through a wall for for a person like that. There's no question. Right. Oh, absolutely. It's I I think to be an inclusive leader, you you've got to find whatever way is is comfortable for you to be inspirational. Right. Obviously, I I am very animated. I get excited. I I you know, I I'm running all over the place. I'm doing this kind of stuff. Not everyone leads that way, but you've got to find your own way to be inspirational, Rob. I think is what the point you're getting at, and that's the that's a mark of an inclusive leader. So, it's a great call out. Yeah, it, it it's it's really a wonderful thing to think about and and you want people to want to be there the next day. You want them to come back and yes. I I yes. think that's that's so much great information. Eddie, great Thank great you. job today. Really wonderful oh, to speak with you. Yeah, no, I really appreciate the opportunity. It's it's this is such an important topic and and um it's fun talking about the book and and uh Rob, I appreciate your questions and thoughtfulness that you put into it. So, um thank you. Well, please come back and join us again. We'd be happy to have you. Absolutely. Anytime. Thank you. All right. Well, I wish you and Nexus Search Partners continued success. As I said, we'll have you right back on in the future. And best of luck with the book. I want to know more about that as well. But that's all the time we have today. Alongside Eddie Pate of Nexus Search Partners, I'm Rob Adams, and this has been Talent Talks.